0: I'd love to invite you back next Sunday. I'm going to be starting a new series um, that I think we have a slide for, Simon. Yeah, we do. It's called Love in Christ, and it's going to be a study of uh, 1 John uh, because Christian love is hard. If you've ever been in a Christian community for a period of time, there's probably some times when you were burned by someone who was trying to love you, you know, and it's hard to figure that out. And if it's been hard for you to figure it out, just take some comfort in knowing that the earliest Christians had a hard time figuring out. That's why John had to write three letters, right? First, second, third. Like, come on, guys, let's let's get this um, together. And so we'll be studying 1 uh, John together. It's a really fantastic book, and it really centers on um, what it means to love each other in Christ. So I hope that you'll be part of that next week. It's A blessing to to think about that together, especially in a world that is increasingly uh, divided, unfortunately. What does it look like for us uh, to love each other? It's always great, as Justin said, to uh, spend time uh, thinking about Easter. I know for me that when Christmas comes around, I need Christmas. I need the message of Christmas that God came to earth. And then when Easter comes, it's a great time for me to think about the fact that the tomb is empty. One of my favorite things about being in the Church of Christ denomination is that we take communion every week, but uh, we need to celebrate more what exactly it is that Christ has been risen from the dead. What does that mean for us? Practically, what does that mean? look like? Because if we're honest, in America, which is, I think, arguably becoming a a more post-Christian culture and um, moving a bit in that direction, but still, especially in parts of our country, it's kind of the air that people breathe, that people just kind of know the story of Jesus, know the resurrection, and don't really think too much about it. One of my friends in Nashville, um, he sent me a picture of this truck, uh, and it says, It is finished Hauling Company, uh, which is (laughs) just a weird thing to have. (laughs) Uh, on on your truck. I don't really know um, why why you would have that on your truck. But um, yeah, it's just one of those phrases and things like we kind of know the story. We know what, what it's about and we take a phrase that it's like Jesus' is dying breath and turn it on the side of a truck, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And unfortunately, I think that just knowing the story of the resurrection, it can become so common that we miss the power in it. And Christians are gathered around the world today to celebrate that God died and that God is alive. That death didn't and doesn't have the last word. The concept of death has fascinated people of all cultures and all different backgrounds for years. Think about like the pyramids. They're tombs, right? Right? They have a big sphinx in front of them guarding the tomb. It's hard to say sphinx. I had to practice that a few times, but um, it's a very large tomb. In fact, the largest pyramid, it took 20,000 men 20 years to build. The Taj Mahal uh, was built as an emperor was burying his wife. It was built to, to bury his wife. So if you ever are wondering if your spouse loves you, just say, what are you willing to build? (laughs) Uh, Are you willing to, you're not willing to make a wonder of the world for me? All right, and whatever. And the tomb that we gather around today isn't famous for how beautiful it is or how marvelous it looks or even who's inside, but what's not inside, right? That Jesus has risen and that the tomb is empty. And that's great news, but I think if we're honest, it's sometimes hard to believe. Maybe it's easy to believe on Easter Sunday when we're all together doing our Easter Sunday thing, but just a random Tuesday in August, you might struggle a little bit to like really be pumped about the fact that the tomb is empty, even though it should change, I think, every moment of our lives. But if it's hard for you sometimes to understand that and really live into the reality of it, uh, it was hard for the earliest Christians as well. One of the strangest verses in all the Bible, right before Jesus gives the Great Commission, is this one uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. You want to say, how is that possible? The risen Lord is like standing there. It's awkward, right? I mean, like how, how are you how how are you possibly in this moment when Jesus is like on the other side of the grave and you're one of his close disciples? And this is one of those verses that sometimes proves to me, because I think it can be hard sometimes to really believe that the news is this good, that this story really is true. Maybe some people just put it together and made that whole thing up. But if you did make this whole thing up, this verse would not be in there, right? You'd just say, and then like Jesus rose from the grave and everybody was just excited about it and pumped and they were on mission for their entire lives. Even as the risen Lord is standing in front of them, it says some doubted. And I think that's good news for us because sometimes we do wonder, like, is the news that good? Is the tomb really empty? Did Jesus really overcome death? We have good company because there were those who struggled with it even there. I think one of the things that we can think of in our modern society, we think that we're advanced and we think that we're not gullible and we think that technology has somehow solved some things and we're just in this better place. One thing that will challenge that a little bit, a mentor of mine asked the question constantly, he says, does your phone make you a better person? That one stings a little bit if you allow it to because it's like, uh, I, I don't know about that, right? I mean, we think that our technology, like, makes us more advanced and that we're better people and that we have some way of, you know, figuring out life, that we have all this stuff. But has modern science and everything made us more virtuous? Has technological advancement, like, moved our society forward? I love how speaker Tony Campolo says this. He says, the best proof we have for the existence of evil is we know what we need to do and we can't do it. We know what we need to do. We know what we should be focusing on. We know that we should be, you know, better people, more in community, better husbands, better spouses, better parents. But we have stuff around us all the time that blocks us from what we intend to do, what we hope to do. So as we're confronted with this evil, I think we can wonder, you know, can I really choose hope? Is the news that beautiful, and that good. I think there are some things that we can stand on that I think do help us to think about the fact that the resurrection, and in my understanding, happened, because there's just some stuff that doesn't make sense. First of all, as Justin was talking a little bit uh, about the fact that the women are the one who go out and tell the news, like again, if you made that up, that is not what you do, because women in that society couldn't testify in court. So historians have said that if That actually was like a way that you're making up the story, like you never would put that in there. Historians, even like non-Christian people say, this looks like it kind of happened like that, because there's no way that you say, hey, there's some witnesses to this tomb being empty, and they wouldn't actually hold up in court, like this is not how you would do that. But the women are the one who first proclaim the news about the empty tomb. And also, another thing that's very fascinating is the earliest Christians were Jews for the most part. They were mostly Jewish converts. In fact, most people with the Christian movement was just getting started, thought, thought that it was just a sect of Judaism. And so it's the group of mostly Jewish people. And what's fascinating to see is that the Jews for thousands of years has been, had been told, don't worship a person, don't worship a person, don't worship a person, because they are supposed to only worship God. Like, don't have the, the human king, you're supposed to only worship God, and then just like at the drop of a hat, these early Jewish Christians are worshiping a person. And eventually, there's like some theology that gets worked out, and they come to this decision that Jesus was like fully God and fully human, but that's like hundreds of years later. and That's still a complex thing for us to figure out. And it's a mostly Jewish group of people started worshiping a person. And then maybe my favorite one is that the earliest Christians, they switched the day of the week that they worshiped on to celebrate the resurrection, which I work with church people. I know how hard it is to change something at church. Like, I just trust you. If you're a plumber and you want to talk about the hardest part of your job, like, go ahead, just whatever it is, just tell me, but just trust me. One of the hardest parts of my job is changing things for church people. So this religious group of people that had had this faith built on thousands of years, all of a sudden, at the drop of a hat, they're worshiping on a totally new day. Just doesn't really make sense. Not only is it hard, like, theologically to get the people to change, but also just practically, right? Imagine if I said, you know, I've got this vision from the Lord, and we're just going to start worshiping on Mondays at 10 a.m., That would cut attendance, right? That would, like, pretty severely, I'd probably get fired. Like, there would just be a whole whole lot of things. It's like, Brian, I don't think the Lord's moving us in that way. So there's the theological side of it, but also just a very practical side. And all of a sudden, this group of early followers, they're worshiping on a new day. And they talk in such weird ways. Like, when Paul writes about death, the way that he talks about it more than any is sleep. It's like there's this whole new view of death that has entered the world. Because what do you do after you sleep? You wake up, right? It's like all of a sudden this, this new group of Christians, they have recognized that the tomb is empty. It requires something of us. We read different versions of the story of the resurrection. I'm going to read from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stopped and looked in and saw the linens lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple um, who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he he saw and believed. For until then, they didn't understand the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home, because that's apparently what you do after someone uh, raised from the dead. This is one of my favorite parts of all the scriptures. Everybody's running around. And again, it shows like, that they, this was not an expected thing. So it's not just like, oh, cool, he raised, like he said. Like, cool, guys, let's go. And they're just sprinting all over the place. Everybody's running. Everybody's doing all this stuff. The word that you would use to describe this is chaos. It was unexpected. It was not what they were thinking was going to happen. And so they're running. Everybody's going all of these places. Then there's a great little nudge in there, because John calls himself, he is writing the story, but he writes himself in as the one whom Jesus loved, and so he kind of mentions, and I ran and I beat Peter to the tomb, just FYI. Like, <laughs> I don't want to brag too much, but, and he just says that he beats him there, and then later he reminds you, it's like, that, you know, that one who beat him to the tomb, then I came in later. Like, it's like, it's, very humorous, like there's just raising from the dead, chaos is happening, and I 'm a better athlete than Peter, basically um, is, is how this goes like i 'm a four three forty and I've made it, made it there um, before anybody else. So this scene just shows that the tomb is empty, and there 's this response, everybody's running around there's a lot going on here, and it continues. Mary was standing outside the tomb, crying, and as she wept, she stopped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I ascend- haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord, Then she gave them his message. This scene is is so powerful that Mary doesn't know who Jesus is until he speaks her name. Do you believe that the risen Lord knows your name? I believe that Easter is about dreaming of new life and new possibilities. It's an invitation for us to be about something different, to enter in with a new hope, to look at our lives in a different way. And obviously, I believe we get this chance every single week as we reflect on communion. Really, moment by moment, I believe we have this opportunity. But Easter is a time that we set aside to truly just think, okay, what is something that God is calling me to? What's a new thing that God might want to do in me. Lisa Chase, who I was not a believer and someone who was married to a prominent author who unfortunately died of cancer at the age of 52, she said that she, as she was experiencing that grief and loss, struggled under the weight of it, like we all maybe have at different times of our lives with grief. And she described what that season was like, like this. She said, uh, my eyeballs and skin hurt when I walked outside. It was like the feeling you get when you're succumbing to the flu, vulnerable and odd and on the verge. And some of us have experienced pain like this. and Maybe it lasted for weeks. As you walked with this new understanding, something had happened, there had been a time of loss, and it's so bad that like, your body aches under it. So she was walking through this difficult season. And her 12-year-old son, she described as he was also dealing with this grief. He said to her, Mom, I wish we lived in a magic world, not one where science was the answer to everything. And she, as she walked through this season of grief, she started to wonder, maybe there is something more. To life. And she said at the end of the article that she wrote about this, I believe my son's view of a magic world is closer to how things are than a secular one. And we live in a modern society where we have the enlightenment behind us. We think, therefore, we are. We think sometimes that's the best way to live. But I think we need to recapture Some of the hope that comes with living in a magic world. Living in a world where the tomb is empty. And one thing that I think plagues my generation, and maybe yours as well, but I know especially for mine, is cynicism. And we don't want to believe that anything is that good. And we have the opportunity because of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, whenever something comes out to put our opinion of it out there and to cut it down, and when things are like really moving, we want to be the first one to say, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I don't want to believe in that. I don't want to give my heart over to that. And when you leave a movie, which likely was like hundreds of millions of dollars to create and... Like, took the gifts and talents of people who had dedicated their entire lives to making it happen. Generally, we say, like, well, did you think it was good or not? And instead of, like, having the challenge of creating something like that yourself, and if you thought it was bad, you were the fool who spent $20 to watch it in 3D. (laughs) We just ask those kinds of questions all the time. Because it's just easier, right, to be cynical and to not give your heart over to things. And I know why we're that way, because we were burned once. Like, we put ourselves out there, we risked, we, like, really invested in something, we tried, we showed somebody, like, our favorite song, and they didn't like it and get the same feelings and chills that we did. Maybe we need to hope again. Some people who I know who call themselves Christians are some of the most cynical people that I know, and that doesn't make sense. Our faith is built on hope that the worst thing that happened in human history became the best thing that happened in human history. That we should be living from that hope. And as you see this scene breaking out and everybody running all over the place, like that should be the spirit that we have when we leave our worship together. You don't have to run to your car, but your spirit should be lifted. And if you do, then I'll beat you. But if your <laughs> spirit should walk out of here with the different sense. And again, I understand that it's hard to live with that kind of hope. It's hard to continue to put yourself out there. It's hard to believe sometimes that the world is that good. But what if the thing you're protecting yourself from is real joy? And like when your heart feels tugged and you're crying and you want to feel that and experience that but you don't want to necessarily talk to anybody about it because you're just not sure maybe what you're protecting yourself from is real joy because when the tomb was empty everybody just started running everywhere it required an unbelievable response what would it look like for you to hope again And I get that that's brave. It's hard to like step out in hope about whatever it is that's been hard for you. And maybe you've been trying to work on this thing and it just doesn't really seem to get that much better. But what would it look like for you to say, you know, I'm just gonna hope again. And it might let me down. It might be difficult for me. It might be hard for me to maintain this posture. But every single time that I fall down, I'm gonna get up and hope again. Because that's what the resurrection requires of me. That life isn't gonna be perfect. There's gonna be some struggles in this. It's going to be difficult, but because of the resurrection, I am going to choose to walk in hope. As many times as I fall down, I'm going to get up again. Because this isn't just like a good idea. This is a reality that has sustained people for generations. We're so caught up in whatever moment we are in, and we need to understand that there's this tradition that has sustained people forever. Have you ever wondered why the writers tell us so much about the fact that the stone is rolled away? It's kind of interesting because in John, just a few verses later, after the passage that we read, Jesus enters into a locked room without opening the door. He just like kind of ghosts the whole thing, and then all of a sudden he's there. But why is it that the stone is rolled away? I love how a preacher says this, Sean Silverman, he says this, that the stone is rolled away not because Jesus needed it, but because we do. The stone is rolled away so we can go in to enter into true life with God. Sometimes when we talk about a relationship with God, we can talk about it very personally and it's about us and getting right with God and like turning your heart over to God and letting God into your heart. But God doesn't want into your heart. God doesn't want you to just like be a little part of your body. God doesn't want to like enter into your life in that way. Your life is a mess. God wants you to enter into his life. The tomb is empty so that we can go in, so that we can experience that kind of life, to have this different perspective, to walk with a different kind of hope. And this is the hope that has sustained Christians for centuries. Because after the resurrection, as that passage said, there's like some hanging out there who are still doubting. Matthew's like, I just want to tell you, Andrew had some issues with it, right? I mean, he's just like, There are people who are still unsure about exactly what happened. They're they're trying to sort this out and work through it. And for the earliest Christians, life was hard. It wasn't like just this sudden ascension into heaven. Pilate was still in charge. Rome ruled for another 500 years Things didn't change in a snap. Things didn't all get better immediately. But what the earliest Christians pressed into, which was remarkable, was an unbelievable hope. A hope that death really sleep. A hope that Jesus conquered the grave. It's a hope that should radically change how we live. I know that it's hard to remember that. I know that it's difficult for us to keep that at the forefront of our minds, but may we learn to hope again. Because I believe as we learn to press into the hope that God has for us and to refuse to fall down even when it's difficult, that we learn to live in the way that God has called us to. Last year, Uh, there was a a church that had the horrific thing happen. We talked about this church several months ago, but there's a Coptic church in Egypt, and on Palm Sunday last year, there were some bombings that killed 47 people. And on the next week, the priest got up to speak, and I'd recommend watching the whole sermon. It's really amazing what, what he says. But, one of the lines that still haunts me a little bit, and he talks about how, like, the church is full after this bombing. Basically, like, he thanks those who did this, because he said, thank you for awakening us a little bit to what our faith means. And so the church was full the next week, and as he's preaching to a group of people that has lost an unbelievable amount, he talks about how these people are now enemies of them, but they love them. And even though they did this horrific thing, they're still going to pray for them. And he says this line, which still sticks with me, I hope that you're sleeping well because we're sleeping like babies. Because what are you going to do to somebody who walks with the hope of God? Kill them? What are you going to do to people who believe that sleep is the real metaphor for death and that Jesus has conquered the grave. You are sitting in this room because men and women historically have sacrificed everything for their faith. You're sitting here in this room, Because men and women in our church previously sacrificed, not their lives, but sacrificed a lot of money and time and blessed us with this great space. There are Christians all around the world who meet in homes and in small gatherings being quiet because of fear of persecution. There are Christians around the world, like that Coptic church, where people, unfortunately, live with a threat of death. And praise God, we don't have to experience that. as like a pressing thing that is always around, although that could happen at some point, God forbid. But is the faith that you're living out worth what so many people have given up? Is the faith that you profess to a reality for you, not just on like one hour of the week, but throughout the week, is it something that changes your life? Is it worth what so many people have sacrificed? And we're like runners in a race. The baton has been passed to us from people who've given up a lot. And Is the way that you live, is the hope that you have, truly worth it? I love that scene that at the tomb, Jesus says Mary's name. And it's when her name is said to her that she becomes fully awake, that she realizes who's there. May we recognize that the risen Lord calls our name as well. I think of Mary here in this moment, and she is so focused on the the problem that like the Body of Jesus isn't there. I mean, she's just focusing in, laser focus on the tomb. And because of that focus, she can't see the good news that's standing right next to her, right? And this is so often how we live, that we have some problem, and we're just like so focused in on that problem, and it's like, okay, this issue, and it's just weighing us down, whatever that happens to be. And when you leave here uh, today, hopefully you have a, a place to go to grab some food, but you're going to have like not the amount of money in your bank account that you wish you did maybe. Tomorrow you might return to that cranky boss who is just terrible. You might continue to have some of the issues and you will walk out of here with this maybe resurrected hope in you, but it's going to be hard to hold on to it because there's a lot of reasons for us to just stare at the tomb. But what is the risen Lord calling you to? In what way is Jesus calling you to hope again? Because you're going to be tempted to lose hope. But Jesus, I believe, continues to call our name. As we close today, I want you to truly picture this moment and the resurrected Christ calling you by name. What is God calling you to hope in again? What is God calling you to just look in a new way at? Because I believe the resurrected Lord is standing there, and we're so good at looking at the tomb. We're so good at focusing on the problems. We're so good at honing in on the issues while the resurrected Jesus is standing right next to us, saying, I'm calling you forward. I know this is hard. I know it's been difficult. I know it's not easy, but I am calling you forward. So our worship team is going to come up again uh, right now. And for the first time through the song, I'd just like you to sit, uh, maybe close your eyes, and just reflect. Think about Jesus calling you forward and the hope that he's called you to. The second time through, I'd love for you to join in singing, but remain seated, and then I'll come back up in, in just a minute. But I hope that you can actually think of what that might look like for the resurrected Lord to call you by name.
1: Hi. have a
0: God, may we learn to hope again. There are things that are difficult for all of us. There's hard realities that we all face. But may we learn that you call our name. We can become so focused on the tomb and the issues and the problems that are before us. But the resurrected Lord, I believe, calls our name and calls us forward. Father, may we learn to hope again, because that is truly what our faith is built on, that the worst thing in human history became the best thing in human history, that the tomb is empty. May we celebrate that not only today, but with our lives. And may you always call us forward to new things so that you can do new things in us. Father, you know our name.